you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pawn! Welcome to iCast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. In this episode, we're talking about Death Metal, Etins, Tiamat, Fighters, and Outlanders. Heard any good rumours lately? So, for those of you confused about the death metal part, here's why. I finally took delivery of my package of The Depths of Drasted, a limited edition box set of CD and one-shot 5e compatible adventure from the death metal band The Black Dahlia Murder, who I'm already a big fan of. The adventure is designed to take around three hours to complete, so perfect for a one-shot, and the character sheets all start at level 5 simply because at level 5 you have access to all the coolest spells and abilities, according to the booklet. The adventure takes place in the long-deserted ruins of the city of Drasted, which in its prime was a centre for magical learning, but has been abandoned for long ages. Stories tell of this repository of knowledge being home to many powerful and magical artefacts ripe for plunder, but superstitions abound that this dark and foreboding place is home to an ancient force that rose up from under the city, poisoning its inhabitants and turning some into horrific abominations beyond the limits of flesh and imagination. In fact, as you enter, a pall falls over your group, and there seems to be an ominous green glow emanating from somewhere out of sight. The set contains the CD of the album Verminous, a 24-page adventure booklet with hand-drawn artwork for items, enemies, maps, and page borders, as well as tables for slime mutations and temporary insanity, a custom set of green dice with a variation of the biohazard symbol on the one face, apart from the d4 where it is in the middle of each face, a DM screen featuring artwork from the album's cover, custom pre-generated character sheets for Sloan McCord Cleric, Dux Lefevre, Wizard, Wagner Lionheart Fighter, Walker Garot, Fighter, and Chance Devereaux, Rogue. High-quality, thick presentation cards for the unique enemies in the game, Dark Cultist, Tomb Hornet, Grave Rat, and King Rat, with hand-drawn artwork printed on one side and background info and stats printed on the reverse. Four hand-drawn, printed, full-pull-out maps to play on with minis. There's definitely more than I expected in the box, and it's of high quality overall. I'm really pleased with not only one of my favourite bands putting out a D&D adventure as a box set for its album release, but also the fact that the module has obviously had a lot of work and love put into it. Grab one if you can. And in some late-breaking news, I've just noticed that Comic Relief is running a Dungeons & Dragons game next week, featuring a number of familiar faces from the UK comedy scene in order to raise money for COVID-19 support. Apparently it will feature Nish Kumar, Sue Perkins, Ed Gamble and Sarah Pascoe setting off on an adventure in D&D. It'll live stream on May the 8th. The DM will be Paul Foxcroft, an improv comic who hosts London comedy show Questing Time 
which sees four comedians play D&D live on stage. Viewers who donate at least £1 on Tiltify before or during the stream will be able to vote on three different outcomes during the playthrough, deciding what magic item the players have to help them, what monster they face in battle, and who among the party is afflicted by a curse. All of the money donated to Comic Relief as part of the D&D event will go towards helping charities both in the UK and around the world providing support to those affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And thanks to Dicebreaker.com for that little bit of news. Off to the races. Humans. I have to say, I don't really understand the choice to play as a human. If in any video game, TTRPG, or even board game, there's another option besides human, I will play that. Elves are my personal favourite, but seeing as we play these games for some escapism from our day-to-day lives, playing as a human seems a little... basic. You could be a powerful elemental, human. A creature that looks like a demon, red skin, horns, tail? Hmm, human. A stout dwarf, a nimble halfling, a graceful elf, an industrious gnome. Ooh, uh, human, please. Bird person, lizard person, sentient robot. Nah. How about a half-human hybrid, a half-orc, a half-elf, a half-drow? Nope, just make me a regular Joe. That being said, let's look at the advantages of playing a human. In D&D, humans are the most varied of all the races. As in real life, there is no real such thing as an average human. Height, weight, skin tones and hair tones are all widely variable. Humans are also driven by ambition to achieve in ways that some of the longer-lived races just aren't. Humans are the most adaptable, with wide varieties of moralities, cultures and proclivities which is widespread over the face of Toril. Despite most human lives lasting under a century, they build cities and monuments to last through the ages and preserve traditions through several lifetimes. Despite looking to legacy in the future, humans also live in the moment for the greater part, making them ideal for the adventuring lifestyle. They keep abreast of events too, including social and political changes. They are also welcoming of other races into their societies, for the most part, at least compared with how many humans are able to live in other societies. Humans also have the odd compunction to champion causes rather than just territory or group affiliations. Adventuring humans may turn to the profession for any number of reasons. Wanderlust, greed and avarice, the pursuit of glory, fame and power, or just the desire to help others and root out evil. Humans have settlements, cities and even empires over the face of Toril, including Neverwinter, Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate, as well as numerous smaller sites like Phandalin, Ereobor, and Loudwater. Humans are kind of generally good at everything in moderation in D&D, and are famous for their adaptability, living in more types of terrain from harsh tundra to scorching deserts than any other race. Humans can survive and even thrive almost anywhere on the face of Toril, or even under its surface. Humans even settle in places that other races have have forsaken, building towns and cities on the ruins of their earlier civilizations. The one thing that holds the human race back from becoming even more prevalent and powerful is their predilection for infighting. Were they able to band together and unify in the way that the elves or dwarves do, they might rule over all Toril. Stat block. 
your ability scores each increase by one. Any alignment is viable as humans span the gamut. Your speed is 30 feet. Your size is medium. Usual range is between 5 to 6 feet tall. Languages are common and one extra language of your choice. Humans typically learn the language of peoples they most commonly trade or deal with, and humans often appropriate words from other languages and pepper it into their own speech. You so classy. Fighter. One of the most diverse classes in the game, the fighter can be specced a number of different ways, from a knight to a gladiator, mercenaries, even archers can come under the purview of the fighter. All fighters learn the basics of all combat styles, which means that as a fighter, you can pick up an axe, warhammer, sword or bow and start doing some damage. You're rarely, if ever, defenceless. You can swashbuckle with the best of them, snipe enemies from range, restrain them with a net, or get up close and personal. Fighters are similarly adept with all types of armour and shields as well. Every fighter has a specialism, whether it's two-handed weapons like great swords or battle axes, dual weapon fighting with short swords or daggers, or a spear and shield combo. Some fighters even bolster their proficiencies and abilities with magic. Fighters stand apart from your average city watch guard, soldier or mercenary, being more like veterans, high-ranking officers or loyal knights. They are much more capable and highly trained than your average grunt. Obviously such skills make them ideal for the adventuring life, and many fighters turn to adventuring after a contract runs out, a job ends, or just to try their hand at gaining special weapons and armour which are often secreted away in the dangerous corners of the world, guarded by monsters that will prove a challenge for a fighter's metal and skill. When creating a fighter, consider where you got your initial training. Were you a mercenary, a soldier, or perhaps a bodyguard? What made you stand out in the ranks? Did you complete some heroic deed by the skin of your teeth? Did you save the life of your employer? Are you just more ruthless and bloodthirsty than the rest of your brothers-in-arms? Did you learn under a mentor, or just dedicate yourself to learning every martial trick for advantage on the battlefield? What made you become a fighter? Did you just have a knack for swinging a sword? Did you take up arms to protect the weak or to get revenge on someone? Do you just want to protect your homeland or its people? Or maybe you needed to prove yourself to someone? Were you tested in the academy, or just spend hours alone honing your skills? You can make a quick fighter build by choosing either strength or dexterity as your primary stat, depending on whether you'd prefer to wield melee weapons or archery slash finesse weapons. Your secondary stat should either be constitution or intelligence if you plan on going the Eldritch Knight route, which we'll discuss shortly. Lastly for the quick build, choose the soldier background. Listen to episode 4 for more info about the soldier background. Link in the show notes. As a fighter, you get to pick a fighting style. The player's handbook lists archery, which gives a plus two bonus to attack rolls that that you make with ranged weapons, defense, which gives you a plus one to AC when you're wearing armor, dueling, when wielding a single melee weapon and no other weapons, you gain a plus two to damage rolls with that weapon, great weapon fighting, when using a two-handed melee weapon or weapon with the versatile property, If you roll a 1 or 2 for damage, you can re-roll but must use the new result. 
Protection. You can impose disadvantage on an attack roll against a creature other than yourself It is with, if it is within five feet of you and visible to you. Handy if your companions get attacked. Two weapon fighting. You can add your ability modifier to the damage of the second attack. Another main mechanic of the fighter class is second wind. This allows you to take a bonus action on your turn to regain 1d10 plus your level hit points back, giving the fighter excellent sustain in prolonged battles without having to call on the healer too much. At second level, you gain action surge. Your reserves of stamina built up over long years of training and battles allow you to take an additional action per turn, as well as your normal and any bonus actions. This ability renews after a long rest. At third level, you pick a martial archetype, which will give you further abilities and benefits as you level up. The PHB lists Champion, focused on raw physical power, benefits include improved criticals, bonuses to athletics roles, an additional fighting style at 10th level, and more. Battlemaster, a more tactical approach to fighting, the Battlemaster studies war, including history and theory. Benefits include maneuvers, which enhance attacks, and superiority dice, which you use to fuel your maneuvers. One of the fighters in my group uses sweeping attack to great effect in melees, hitting multiple enemies in one swing. Eldritch Knight combines magic with fighting abilities. They study abjuration to gain magical protection during battles and evocation to deal AoE damage to multiple enemies at once. Eldritch Knights learn relatively few spells compared to a real caster, but commit them to memory rather than using a spellbook. Xanathar's Guide to Everything extends the list with Arcane Archer, weaving elven magic into bow attacks, Arcane Archers form some of the most elite elven warriors, protecting borders and territories with shots that can curve around corners, or infuse arrows with magic that can banish creatures to the Feywild, beguile or enfeeble foes, or burst, adding AoE damage, grasp enemies, pass through objects, seek out enemies, or cloud their vision with shadows. Cavalier. Cavaliers excel at mounted combat, having usually been born into nobility and raised at court. You gain proficiency in one of history, animal handling, insight, performance or persuasion, or you can learn an additional language of your choice. You gain advantage on saving throws made to avoid falling off your mount and can land on your feet if you do fall off, but drop no more than 10 feet and aren't incapacitated at the time. Mounting and dismounting only costs 5 feet of movement rather than half normal speed. You can mark creatures when attacking them, giving them disadvantage on attack rolls when you aren't the target. Later, you get the ability to ward off attacks against you, your mount, or others nearby as a reaction. Samurai. A samurai has unlimited resolve and indomitable fighting spirit. You gain proficiency in one from history, insight, performance, or persuasion, or an additional language of choice. You can use a bonus action on your turn to give yourself advantage on weapon attack rolls until the end of the turn, and you gain 5 temporary HP. You can use this feature 3 times between long rests. At later levels, you gain bonuses to persuasion checks and wisdom saving throws. You can also stave off unconsciousness when dropping to 0 HP, starting at 18th level, using a reaction to immediately take another turn, which interrupts the current turn. The Sword Coast's Adventurer's Guide adds Purple Dragon Knight into the tally. Hailing from Cormyr, 
PDKs have the pledge to protect the crown of Cormyr, both within its borders and seeking out enemies outside. They wander around as knights errant, dealing out justice as warranted by their code of chivalry. At third level, you can inspire others by your deeds in battle by using your second wind feature, which now affects three creatures allied with you within 60 feet who gain HP equal to your fighter level, provided they can see or hear you. At 10th level, you can give allied creatures within 60 feet of you the ability to make melee or ranged attack as a reaction when you use your action surge. If you like the Purple Dragon Knight feature set, of which there are more listed in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide than I've discussed, due to time, but don't want to be enthralled to Cormir for whatever reason, you can use the feature set as a banneret. Stat block. HP at first level is 10 plus your constitution modifier. HP at later levels is 1d10 or 6 plus your constitution modifier per level. For hit dice you get 1d10 per level. Proficiencies are weapons, simple and martial, and armour, all armour and shields. Tools you get none. Saving throws are strength and constitution. And skills you can choose two from acrobatics, animal handling, athletics, history, insight, intimidation, perception and survival. For equipment, you can either have chainmail or leather armour, longbow and 20 arrows, a martial weapon and a shield or two martial weapons, two hand axes or a light crossbow with 20 bolts, and a Dungeoneers or Explorers pack. Background check. Outlander. The Outlander background gives your character a life lived in the wilds of the world. Used to wide open spaces, all types of weather and quiet solitude away from the bustle of crowded cities and their technologies. You may have been a rover, a wanderer, a nomad, vagabond, call me what you will, sorry, a recluse, although that there is also the hermit background to be, yet to be covered on this show, a hunter, or anyone who prefers a life alone with the wilds of nature for company. You have been influenced and impacted by some of the strange sights and experiences you've had in places that most can only imagine. You have an excellent memory for maps and geography, and can always recall the general layout of terrain, settlements, and other features of the land. You can always find fresh water and food for yourself and up to five other companions per day, as long as the land is the sort that would have wild berries, small game, rivers or lakes, etc. Living in the wilds has impacted your social skills, though, and you may lack the graces and airs of city dwellers, to the point where you might be considered gruff, abrupt or even downright rude. Life in the wilds has no need for niceties and no time for protracted politeness. Things happen fast in the wild and you need to be ready to react. It may be that your character doesn't speak much, being used to animal companions and their own thoughts. Or perhaps your character felt starved for conversation and tries to make up for long stretches without it by blurting out everything that crosses their mind. Generally, the ties of tribe, family, clan or the natural world are the most important bonds to an outlander, but that could easily be the group of adventurers you've chosen to ally yourself with. Stat block. You have skill proficiencies in athletics and survival. Tools is one type of musical instrument. Languages, one of your choice. I assume in addition to common. Equipment, a staff, a hunting trap, 
a trophy from an animal you killed, a set of traveller's clothes, and a pouch containing ten gold pieces. Monster Menagerie Ettins Orcs in D&D are generally regarded as brash, uncouth, violent, and generally ill-tempered. Why am I mentioning orcs in a section about Ettins? Well, imagine an orc crossed with a giant with all the bad behaviours of an orc with added poor self-hygiene into the mix. That's the beginnings of an Ettin. Ettins are foul creatures who rarely, if ever, bathe leading to a build-up of layers of dirt and grime caked onto their skins and the under, under the hides it wears. Ettins are the conjoined twins of the D&D world, having two heads with each having its own distinct personality and name. Not confusing at all, I'm sure. This means that each personality never experiences solitude or privacy. This close-quarters existence can lead to infighting between the creature's two heads, with personality clashes being exacerbated by the fact that they cannot spend time apart. Familiarity breeds contempt and all that. For those of you with siblings, imagine, or remember, a time when you were trapped somewhere with your sibling like a bad holiday, and you'll instantly understand why Ettins are such unpleasant creatures. Maybe you're going through something similar with family members during the lockdown. Let's hope not. The Ettins' two heads may bully one another or take offence at various perceived slights, arguing both loudly and vociferously. One of the few creatures that can not only disagree with themselves but might be the only creature that cannot be on speaking terms with itself, suggestions for others are welcomed. Ettins also avoid each other like the plague, which if you've ever been on a double date you'll know that either they or you will be fighting about half the times you meet. Now imagine that scenario, except it will always be both couples fighting, both with themselves and with the other couple, leading to a multitude of arguments all happening simultaneously. That would be Etin socialising, if they were civilised enough to socialise. Etin only tolerate each other's company just long enough to procreate, with females initiating couplings by conquering a male, who then feeds and cares for the mother during a six-month pregnancy. Once the child is born, the father is free to leave, the mother parenting the child until it is old enough to hunt for itself. Occasionally, Etin heads will work together on important tasks, such as killing adventuring parties whenever possible. Their united front presents an ability to make two simultaneous attacks, effectively doubling their potential damage output. Surprisingly, for a large, lumbering, unwashed creature, Etins are difficult to sneak up on. One head is always awake. They take shifts sleeping, so forget night raids. Also, its two heads give it advantage on wisdom perception checks, which makes sense because it can be looking in two different directions at the same time. That also applies to saving throws against being blinded, charmed, deafened, frightened, stunned, and knocked unconscious. Occasionally, Ettins may work for tribes of orcs as guards, scouts, or marauders, but aren't particularly loyal to them. You refer to an Etin by both their names together, so if one head was called Gurgle and the other one was called Wurgle, you would call the creature Gurglewurgle. Stat block. Etins are classified as a chaotic, evil, large giant. They have natural armour in the form of thick hides that has an AC of 12. Their speed is 40 feet. 
they have a total of 85 or 10d10 plus 30 HP. They have a plus 4 to perception and a passive perception of 14. They have dark vision to 60 feet. They speak giant and orc. They have a challenge rating of 4 and award 1100 XP. Lore Academy I'm not going to do a Lore Academy section this week, as next week I'm doing another bonus episode, this time on the history of D&D. The Infamous Tiamat The Queen and Goddess of Evil Chromatic Dragons Listen to the last bonus episode for more info on dragons, chromatic and otherwise, link in the show notes. Tiamat is a five-headed monstrosity and a lesser god in 5th edition. Ruler of Avernus, the first layer of the Nine Hells, Tiamat was first introduced in the Greyhawk setting in 1975, but was simply referred to as Dragon Queen. In fact, she didn't become Tiamat until her listing in the first edition Monster Manual. As a lesser god, she cannot be destroyed by anything less than a greater god, and can reform if killed which has happened several times. Her godly domain is trickery. Greedy, hateful and vain, Tiamat spends her days lusting after power and wealth. She likes to amass wealth like any dragon, and in particular the chromatics, but prefers to have her servants, members of her, members of her church or cult of the dragon, bring it to her as gifts rather than having to find it herself. She has also charged the cult of the dragon with assembling the mask of the dragon queen from its parts so that she can leave Avernus. She has several avatars and can take the form of a Mulan human sorcerer with dark hair known as the Dark Lady. The chromatic dragon, which is the iconic five-headed dragon with the wyvern-like tail that ends in a poisoned barb, as well as the undying queen, which is a dracolich version of the chromatic dragon. Unlike Etin's, Tiamat's multifarious heads all represent the same being, and rarely argue. Possibly the toughest single target in the game, she is resistant to cold, fire, thunder, lightning, and acid, and poison effects. You'd need a magical weapon of at least plus two to even harm her. She's usually flanked by five chromatic consorts who have many of the same powers as her, and who are all apex examples of each of the chromatics and a legendary dragon in their own right. Add to this her army of minions, and she could be quite a difficult kill for even a seasoned party. She can extend her senses and can see, hear, touch and smell over a 10-mile radius, or even within 10 miles of her worshippers. Tiamat can also speak to all beings within 10 miles of her directly, and can speak all known languages. She views all mortal races as unworthy and disposable tools at best. She can also breathe underwater indefinitely and use her breath weapons whilst underwater. She can corrupt water and potions that use water as a component. She can charm reptiles, become ethereal at will and travel to the astral plane. Tiamat is thousands of years old. She is violently opposed to Bahamut the Platinum Dragon being his antithesis. They clashed during a time known as the Dragonfall War, where the two dragons and their followers entered into a fully waged conflict that ended when Tiamat sought to kill Gilgim, but was intercepted by Bahamut who had entered the Untheric Pantheon 
under the alias of Marduk, and the two killed each other. This led to Tiamat being relegated to the Nine Hells as an archfiend, being given the rule of Avernus by Asmodeus. She was to stop outcast devils on that layer of hell from becoming a threat, but was so bad at the task that Asmodeus demoted her. Later, Untherite cultists summoned the Dark Lady aspect of Tiamat to Toril to rebel against the Church of Gilgim. Gilgim had become hated for his tyrannical rule, and so followers flocked to the Church of Tiamat, and she was elevated once again to the status of demigoddess. After being defeated at the hands of Gilgim, her essence divided and inhabited the three powerful chromatic dragons, Chazar, Gestanius, and Scathosin, whereupon Chazar ate the other two dragons, and Tiamat reappeared as her five-headed aspect. She is one of the only characters from D&D The Game to appear in the 80s Saturday morning cartoon show and features in the Wizard of the Coast adventure modules Horde of the Dragon Queen and The Rise of Tiamat, available collected as Tyranny of Dragons, which includes never-before-seen concept art and new resources. There will be an affiliate link to all of these in the show notes. Stat block. Tiamat has a challenge rating of 30. Her alignments are lawful evil and chaotic evil. Good luck. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com. Join the Discord server at https colon slash slash discord dot gg slash capital Q capital C nine D two capital Y capital Q. Just check the show notes for the link. Or find us on Twitter or Instagram at iCastPod. I create all the content you see and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects, which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Also, I've included some affiliate links. If you're shopping for new resource books, consider using my link. It costs you nothing extra, but the show gets a little help with with its running costs. Blimey, couldn't finish that one. Until next time, friends, may Timora bless your endeavours.